Welcome to our Sabbath School study hour here at the Granite Bay Hilltop Church. I welcome you to our hour of diving deep into the Bible, learning more about God, learning more about life, and what God wants from us here in this world. Before we get in, I'd like to invite you to take advantage of our free offer for this week. This is Angel Messages from Space. If you would like to have this free offer and study, dive deeper into God's Bible, you can call the number 866-788-3966 and you could ask for the number, for the offer number 137. If you're in continental North America, you could text SH165 to the number 40544 and you could get a link to a digital download. Or if you're outside of the US or of Canada, you can go to study.aftv.org slash SH165 and you could also get the same digital download for this free offer. It goes hand in hand with what we're going to be talking about this week, and it prepares you better to study the Bible with others, to learn more, learn more about God for yourself and for your, uh, your sphere of influence with your friends, with your family, at home, at work. Um, so I invite you for that. Also, before we go into our study of this week's lesson, we're starting a brand new quarter today, and there's so much to look at, so much to talk about, and I'm sure that the Lord will lead us through where he wants us to. But before that, let's invite him to be at the front and foremost of what we're going to be talking about. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, thank you so much for this moment where we can come together um, over the blessing in this case, which is technology, and learn more about you, Lord, together. Uh, myself and my friends here at Granite Bay and those who are watching, Lord, from far away, some from here in the U.S., others from around the world, Lord, I ask you to bless this message and allow it to reach them where they're at. Please, Lord, allow the human instrument to fall into the background of the message and allow people's hearts and minds to be changed according to your will. Bless us as we talk about your mission to us. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I am so excited for our study this quarter. We're beginning this lesson. It's brand new lesson that has everything to do with what God wants to do with us and for us, how he wants to use us. But most importantly, the understanding that God didn't just stand back. He didn't just sit back when this world was sinking into chaos. God didn't just stand back. No, he became active. And so because he became active, he calls us also to be active. Now, friends, the, uh, the memory verse for our, uh, for our Sabbath school study for this week comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 9, that says this, Then the Lord God called Adam and said to him, Where are you? This call right here is, in my opinion, a call that comes from a broken heart. This reveals to us that God, I mean, God knows everything, friends. Of course, he knew where Adam and Eve were. He's asking this question to instigate them to think. When I was a child, I remember my mom, you know, coming to me when I did some mischief, which happened quite regularly, actually. Some mischief would happen somehow, you know, and, um, and she would come to me and she would ask, Lucas, what have you done? What did you do? Now, usually when my mom asked that question, she knew what had happened. She knew what I had done. But why, why is she asking me then? It's simple, to make me think and to allow me or give me an opportunity to come clean. 
But usually this question, it was coming from someone who knew what was going on. In the case here in Genesis, of course God knew. Of course he knew what what had happened. And yet he's seeking them and giving them an opportunity to come clean. So friends, this quarter we will be learning about God's mission or learning that God's mission should be the ultimate goal of our lives as well. Since it's his mission and there he's giving them an opportunity to participate in the fix and the cure of what had happened. We're going to get to that um, in a few minutes. But it should be our mission. It should be our goal as well to participate with God in his mission. The mission, friends, finds its origin. This mission that we talk about, you know, and this is a buzzword when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to God, this is a buzzword, right? Mission, mission, mission. Well, what does this mean? Sometimes we have this tendency of thinking that the mission is ours. It's our mission. When it's not, it's God's mission. And our goal in life is to participate in that mission with him. The mission finds its origin and purpose in God himself. When we talk about mission, usually, you know, biblically, we usually go to uh, Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 through 20, which is known as the Great Commission. That's usually where our mind goes to when we're thinking about uh, mission or evangelism. But the mission itself precedes this in time and and in space. It doesn't find its origin even in the call of Abraham. It doesn't find its origin in the calling of the Jewish nation. It originates with God himself. This mission originates with God. Its origin precedes even the creation and the fall. Because in Revelation 13 verse 8, we find the truth that sin did not catch God by surprise. Revelation chapter 13 verse 8 tells us that Jesus was the lamb slain since the foundation of the world. I want you to think about that. Jesus was the lamb slain since the foundation of the world. How could he be the lamb slain since the foundation of the world if at the foundation of the world there was no sin? So you see that the plan, this divine directive to create a a countermeasure to the emergency of sin, it wasn't something that just happened upon God. God didn't, God wasn't caught by surprise. This is something that God planned for in his omniscience. He knew it was going to happen. And so when it happened, he, he, he activated the plan. Revelation 13 verse 8 tells us that. Jesus, the lamb slain since the foundation of the world. This tells us that God's answer to sin was not a last-minute plan. Again, after the fall, Scripture reveals God as the one who intentionally seeks his creatures and wishes to be with them. If there's one thing that we know about the God of the Bible is that he is a relational being. He wants to have contact. He wants to be present. He wants to be close. One of the greatest differences between the religion of the Bible and any other religion is that in all other religions, there's the semblance of mystery. There's a distance between the gods or whichever god the, you know, the religion is all about and us and humanity. There's always a distance. It seems as though there's this, uh, there's this, this myth of, of power, that if you're powerful, then you have to remain distant, far away, as not to be affected by the, the, the weaknesses and frailties of those who are you know, uh, su- supporting you or, or following you in, in your faith. However, the God of the Bible, he is a God that wants to be present. There is no uh, mysticism of distance. There is no myth of distance. The God of the Bible is close. We'll see that later today in our study, but you'll see that consistently throughout the Bible. He seeks Adam and Eve out. He relates to Adam and to Eve. He He relates to Abraham. He relates to Noah. He approaches these people. It's not the other way around. There's no way that of our own 
might or strength or resources we could approach God on our own. It's always he. He takes the, the, the initiative. He takes the first steps. And that's what's being revealed here by the God of the Bible. He is a relational being. He establishes a relationship with Adam and Eve after sin. And he seeks to restore this broken relationship. After all, his mission, despite several setbacks, reversals, it will triumph. Revelation chapter 21 and 22 tell us, tells us as much. And in this effort of relating, in this effort of connecting, after all, the word religion, it's a, it's a word that it, it comes from the word religari, which literally means to reconnect, to bond. And so religion in its purest essence is this, it's this reconnection to something that was lost. This is God wanting to reconnect. That's what this mission is all about. And he includes everyone. He calls everyone to participate in his missionary efforts. And that, friends, is where you and I come in. That's our part of the story here. But before we understand, before we understand the mission, and I feel that this is where a lot of people go wrong. Before we understand the mission, we have to understand the God of the mission. You're never going to understand the mission if you don't understand the God of the mission. And that's what this quarter's lesson, and that's what our week's lesson is all about. Understanding the God behind the mission. Friends, the divine mission is not a program, but a relational process. And every aspect of it should be linked to God himself. And that's where Sunday's lesson uh, begins. That's where we're going to start. Sunday has the title, The God Who Reaches Out to Us. You see, friends, humanity that was created perfect, that was placed in a perfect environment, in a perfect place, surrounded by the perfect love of God, which is his greatest attribute, was also endowed with the freedom of choice, with free will. The choice of disobedience created chaos. And here I'm, I'm kind of speeding up because that's not really the topic. It's, you know, the, the mystery of iniquity today is not our topic. So I'm speeding up the process here, but being granted this freedom of choice and then choosing wrong, it created chaos in the perfect and beautiful creation. And the question here, because we're analyzing this from, from the other side, from the side of heaven, the question that can arise here is, what instrument did the devil, what instrument did the serpent use to deceive the race's parents, to deceive Adam and Eve? And the answer is that he used the same instrument that he had used before up in heaven with the angels in the perfect environment of God's paradise. He used the lie, deception. Revelation chapter 12 verse 4 tells us that with his tail, he dragged multitudes of angels, a third of them in fact, a true disruption in the order of God's creation. Now, we know who the dragon is, we know who the stars are. So my question to you right now is, what does the tail symbol symbolize? If he dragged a third of the angels of heaven, the stars of heaven, with his tail, and everything here is symbolic, the stars, the dragon, what does the tail represent? And the answer is the lie. The instrument used by the devil was the lie. According to Isaiah 9.15, the tail is where the strength of the deception lies, the dragon with its tail. The lie, friends, is the great weapon of the devil. Before Eden, in Eden, and after Eden, it continues the same, the power of the lie. It's no wonder that he is called also the father of lies. 
The devil established a kingdom based on lies. And friends, there are lies about everything in this world. There is a lie for everything. There is a lie about God, a lie about us, a lie about others, a lie about each other. Lies about work, lies about marriage, lies about children, lies about family, lies about entertainment, lies about sex, lies about money, lies about success, lies about life, lies about death. And the destructive power of the lie has been proven over and over and over again throughout history. The devil, the serpent of the old serpent, Satan, is, as I've already mentioned, a liar and the father of lies. That's how the Bible calls him. He's the originator of the philosophy that was expressed by Joseph Goebbels, who was the the marketing uh, minister of Adolf Hitler, who has a quote attributed to him that says, if you come or if you tell a lie big enough and keep repeating it over and over, people will eventually come to believe it. Adam and Eve were overcome by the devil's lies. You will be like God, is what he said. And history underwent a formidable alteration at that point. The consequences of the fall were inevitable. Did humans become like God? Well, they began to choose between what is right and what is wrong. That's true. They came to understand what is right and what is wrong. The knowledge of of good and evil that they did have, they did acquire. But they disregarded their conditions as creatures. They forgot, and this is where I feel that the devil is is a specialist. The devil is a specialist at at half-truths or half-lies. I feel that in that lie, you will not die. That was, you know, that's what he said. You will become like God. There's always the lie, the main thing, and then you have the, um, and then at that point you have the, uh, the little disclosure on the bottom. Have you ever seen one of, the, one, of those, uh, one of those ads on TV where they have like a beautiful setting and they have like a medicine that's supposed to be a miracle medicine and then underneath in small letters they have may cause headaches, may cause coma, may cause death right? And, but the, the ad is running and it's a peaceful song and it's people running in a park and playing with their dog. So I feel that the devil, he's a specialist at that kind of propaganda where he puts out the great words and then underneath he has the little disclosures, right? You will be like God knowing good and evil. And that is precisely what Adam and Eve fell or fell for, right? That's what Eve fell for at that moment. You'll be like God. You'll see that the deception, the lie to the woman, it was the sin that she fell to was a different sin than what the man fell for. And that's where you see the differences in curses that come later along. But that's outside of the point. In any case, here they disregard their condition as creatures, which can only choose between what is right and wrong, but they cannot decide what is right and wrong. Do you see the difference? As created Beings, we can choose to do right or wrong, but we don't get to choose what is right and what is wrong. And that's a fundamental differentiation here because I hear so many people that kind of get the whole notion of freedom of choice or free will wrong because they think that free will would be to do whatever you want without consequences. That's not free will. Free will is being able to choose between right and wrong, but it doesn't mean that you get to choose what is right. Or wrong. That is a divine prerogative. That's a divine function. 
Assuming God's prerogative, people began to choose what seems to be right and wrong for them. And this attitude led us to the mess that surrounds us, where everyone has their own truth. Have you ever heard someone say that before? Well, my truth is different from your truth, which is different from their truth. Friends, truth is one. (laughs) Truth is an absolute. By definition, truth is an absolute. There is no your or my or our truth. The sky is blue, cold is cold, water is wet. Now, you could go down into the, the philosophy and the, 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 the deep conversations of that or what that represents, but the matter of the fact is that God is one. God is absolute truth. That's what Jesus says. I am the truth, the way, and the life. So, in this sense here, uh, there is no your truth, my truth. There's God's truth. And there's the devil's untruth or the devil's lies. And God confronted, as we saw in our memory verse, God confronted the original couple, asking them, where are you? Away, to make them think about their condition and what had caused it. Sin resulted in fear and fleeing from God ever since. But in Genesis 3.15, and this is where we see God stepping in, this is where we see God reacting to the emergency of sin, reacting to the problem, because God here, he steps in, and we find the first messianic prophecy of the entire Bible. The first reference in scripture about the mission of the Messiah. And you'll see that in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 that says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And that's our segue into Monday's lesson. Because Monday's title is The God Who Longs to Be With Us. The God Who Longs to Be With Us. Friends, the unfolding of sin is a formidable historical event. It affected everyone. Everyone. The entire created order. Adam and Eve bore children who were just like them. Genesis 5.3 tells us that. With the flood and then the Tower of Babel, we have evidence that sin became a ubiquitous problem, a universal problem. And so, God devised a universal response to address the problem created by sin. And that response, that answer, was Adam, his family, further on, the nation that came from him, that ultimately leads us to Christ the seed, which fulfills Genesis 3.15, that first messianic promise. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 7, we find God making this covenant, this promise. I will establish my covenant between me and between your descendants. But then later on in Genesis 26.3, we see that it's reaffirmed with Isaac. And then in Genesis chapter 28, verse 15, with Jacob, that letter, you'll remember the dream that Jacob has at Bethel, is Jesus. The latter is Jesus, who established a relationship of communication that crossed, that bridged the gap of sin. One of the things that we have to understand here, friends, is that not only do we have a hard time understanding God, here here we're talking about extremes. When it comes to salvation, and it comes to, and when it comes to the whole, the whole concept of God becoming man, Jesus Christ incarnating, we have a hard time understanding the absolute gulf, the absolute gap represented by these two extremes. Not only do we have a hard time understanding God and his power and majesty coming down, we're talking about the greatest descent in the history of the universe from the throne of heaven to planet Earth. 
So we have a hard time with that. And at the same time, we have a hard time understanding ourselves. We have a hard time understanding our, the depths of our problem, the depths of our condition. And so here we're dealing with the greatest descent from the throne of God in heaven all the way to eensy teensy tiny planet earth. That's how far sin went. And that's how far God went in order to save us, in order to give us an out of this problem. The entire history of the Old Testament proves that. With its events, with its characters, its stories, its advances, and then its setbacks, its points and its counterpoints, that's the fulfillment of God's missionary plan, despite the deviations and the detours created by the infidelity of the creatures involved, of the people involved. But God continues to act within his missionary plan. You see throughout the stories of the Bible, Joseph, how God was leading the circumstances. And providentially, this man, this, this Hebrew, becomes the second most powerful man in the world. Moses, who was born in that situation. Well, he was not born in that situation, but he grew up in that situation, the courts of Egypt, who later on runs away. You see kind of like an inversion from the story of Joseph. He runs away and how God providentially leads him into what he became. You see God's hand continuously leading the thread of history with its different nuances and details. When God draws water from the rock, when he opens the Red Sea, when he opens the path in the desert, offers dreams and visions to different people, he faithfully advances in the direction of the purpose of his plans. No deviation. Sometimes with the help of people, most of the times in spite of people, due to their hard-headedness, stubbornness. You see, friends, the most high God, he never sleeps and he never slumbers. Patiently, he guides history towards the fulfillment of the grand restoration. Nothing, absolutely nothing, nothing and no one can divert the most high from his plans, from his project. As the letter, as the letter of Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18 quotes from the book of Numbers, chapter 23, verse 19, God is not a man that he might lie. Humans lie. God does not. What he said would happen will happen. The past is proof of that. When it comes to the prophecies of the Bible, when it comes to his communication with the prophets, with the apostles, God does not lie. And here's another thing. God doesn't enshroud things in mystery. What you find in the Bible is God doing his best to communicate heavenly universal realities to our finite minds. When in Exodus chapter 29 verse 43 and 45, he's establishing the sanctuary, the Lord literally set up a tent to dwell among the children of Israel, to live with the men, with the women, with the children, so that they could understand him better, to reach out to them. In the Advent Review and Herald of the Sabbath, December 17, 1872, we find a very interesting quote where Ellen White writes, the sacrificial, the sacrificial offerings and the priesthood of the Jewish system were instituted to represent the death and mediatorial work of Christ. All those ceremonies had no meaning and no virtue, only as they related to Christ. In other words, 
the whole sanctuary service, the whole, the, all the ceremonies, everything that was going on in the, in, the, in, the, in the tabernacle, none of it meant anything if not as they related to Christ. And unfortunately, what you find later on when Christ did come is that people had lost the understanding, the meaning, the essence of what those things were supposed to represent through and in Christ. And that's where Christ came. That's when he came to teach us in the best way possible. I've said this here before. I'll say it again. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, he once said, you know, he made a contrast. He said that human beings, they put on masks to hide themselves, right? Usually when you put on a mask, it's usually to hide yourself. For God, it was the other way around. He put on a mask to reveal himself so that we could understand him better. And that mask was Jesus Christ. It is God concentrating all of his efforts into communicating, into relating, into connecting. The Old Testament, and this comes in Tuesday's lesson with the title, The God Who Became One With Us. The Old Testament is an introduction to the plan implemented by God. Everything God does, friends, everything God does is the step towards his approach to us until the final realization, until heaven, until all of this mess is done away with. Isaiah 49, verse 6 and verse 10 uh, reveals this perfectly. Read it later. We're not going to get into that because that's outside of the scope of the study, but go there later. His purposes, friends, will be fulfilled. Like I said before, what God says happens. And through Christ, what was a promise became a reality. That's where you find that what the children of Israel, what the patriarchs, what the, what the prophets were waiting for for millennia, the promise, it became a reality in Jesus Christ. And here we find the answer to the question, what does it mean that God loves us? This is known as the mystery of piety. Why does God love us? I mean, we could attempt to give some answer to this, some semblance of an answer, but we know that we're going to spend eternity understanding God's love better. Because again, our minds are just too small and God is just too great. And so be careful when you think that you have all the answers to all the questions. We don't. We don't. We'll spend all of eternity learning more about this. But why? Why does God love us? Well, we know that we love him because he loved us first. To me, that's already an answer in itself. To Ellen White, God doesn't love us because we obey him, but simply because he loves us. It's in his nature. It's an attribute of God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 says, He who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. It's in his nature. It's part of his essence. God is love. And many reverse this order and they, tra they, they transform God as to what they are. They transform God as they are. Humans are very good at that. We paint caricatures, caricatures of God in more in our image than in his image. Humans are very good at doing that. God loves us, friends, not only when we do the right thing or when we're, we're perfect. Friends, God loves us because of himself. It is his nature to love. Our love and our obedience will come as the result Never the cause. God doesn't love you because you're obedient, because you 
read your Bible, go to church, do the right things. God loves you. And because he loves you, that love, it has this transformational power of bringing you to do those things. You see, friends, God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you way too much to allow you to stay the way you are. He wants to make you happier. He wants to make you better. He wants to make you a better influence on people. He wants to make you a better, better companion to people. God loves you way too much to allow you to remain in the way that you were before you came to him. So a lot of people, it seems sometimes offensive. Well, doesn't God just accept me the way I am? Doesn't he love me the way I am? Absolutely he does. But he loves you way too much to, to let you stay in that condition. <laughs> he loves you to the point who, where he will bring you to hate what you are, only to then fall in love with what you can become in him. Did you get that? He loves you way too much. And that love, it brings you to hate what you are, only then to fall in love with what you can become in him. What do we learn from John chapter 1, verse 14 through 18, which describes for us the process of the incarnation? Christ's incarnation is the essence of God's mission in our favor. In Jesus Christ, God is present among his creatures. He's not distant. He's not far away. He's not an absent landlord. He is present and accounted for. In John chapter 1, verse 14, we read, The only begotten dwelled among us, full of grace and truth, and we saw his glory. We saw his glory. In him, God fulfilled his rescue mission and achieved his purpose. And so how should we respond? That's the question. Now that I know this, now that this is something that God has already revealed to me, what do I do with this information? How do I respond? In service. Didn't he answer in service? Isn't that the whole point of the, the story of salvation? That he came to serve and not to be served? And so we, we also respond in service in favor of those who are also objects of his divine mission. We then become participants in that mission. And that's where Wednesday becomes relevant to us. The God who continues to be with us. Not only did he come and spend some time with us, but he continues to be with us in a sense or in a way where we don't have to say goodbye. You don't ever have to say goodbye to God because he's always there. Friends, the life and the ministry of Christ can constitute the full revelation of God. Everything that God could have revealed, everything that we could have understood was present in Jesus, in his life. The book of Hebrews at its opening asserts, having spoken in many ways to our ancestors by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. What could God have done more? What more could he have done? Nothing. Because the truth is that in Jesus, heaven emptied itself of the best that it could offer, the best that it could give. In three years of his public life and ministry, Jesus spoke more about God than everything that had been seen and heard in the past. In just three and a half years of ministry, of public ministry. What else does the letter of Hebrews say about Jesus? Well, he is the radiance of God's glory. He is upholding all things by the word of his might, of his power. As the author of Hebrews claims, Jesus is superior. Jesus is better than anything or anyone that preceded him. 
If you ever want to understand the book of Hebrews, if you ever want to read it and know what's going on, just remember the simple thing. It's a book that is showing anyone and everyone that could read it. it actually, it's a, it's a homily. It's a sermon, right? It was a sermon and then it was written down. So it's a homily. It's a sermon and it's proving the point. It's driving the point, the point home that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the temple. Jesus is better than the sacrifices. Calvary is better than the Sinai. God or, or uh, the cross is better than the law. So it's, it's, it's the author going systematically through everything that the Jewish nation prided itself of and with and proving that Jesus Christ is better. He, he covers the cost. He's better. He's greater than Moses, Aaron, and the prophets. He's greater than everything that God had spoken. Or it, he's more. The revelation is amplified of what it was before. He brought a better revelation. Calvary, like I said, is superior to the Sinai. He is the perfect image of the invisible God. All lines of the past revelation converge, come together on him. The one in whom all the fullness of God dwells. Through his blood, he ensured redemption, peace, forgiveness. Through his sacrifice, he paved a path. He, he placed a bridge. Because if there's one thing that sin does, it separates us from God. Sin separates us from God. Do you remember how Jesus felt separated by God at the Gethsemane? At the Gethsemane? On the cross where he says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Which is a quote of a chapter of Psalms. You remember that? It's because sin separates us from God. It separated, it was capable of separating Jesus from his father. Imagine you and me. And so here, by his sacrifice, he provided a bridge, a reconnection. Through him, we can confidently or even boldly, imagine that, boldly enter God's presence in the most holy place. You remember that in the Old Testament, anyone who came into the king's presence without being, un, without being invited was killed. Look at Esther. She was scared because if she entered Asuerus's, uh chamber, kingly chamber, without being invited, she was scared that she would be killed. And that was a common practice. You didn't just come boldly into the throne room of a king. But through the blood of Christ, we enter God's presence with confidence. He extends his scepter to us, offering us not just half, but the entirety of his kingdom. John 3.16, another verse that is one of the most well-known in the entire Bible. It speaks of the greatest love story ever told, where God made his ultimate offer of love and of grace to us. In his last week, during the Passover supper, Jesus presented himself as our Passover. He invited us to partake of the flesh and of the, and of the blood, symbols of his life given for us. Jesus, friends, is our Passover, as the Apostle Paul says. This powerful symbol of blood is the reminder of substitution and deliverance. Just as in the exodus from Egypt where the blood was sprinkled on the doorpost, uh, where the blood of the lamb, it brought life, it brought redemption to the firstborn children, we find that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, my favorite verse in the Bible, it says, he who knew no sin became sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin. Look at the inversion. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could be called the righteousness of God. What's the significance of the promise made by Christ in the Great Commission? 
And that's, that's where we become involved again. Because up to now we've been looking, we've been, we've been considering the God of the mission. So where do we come into this? How does this extend to us? The God of the mission. Well, in the Great Commission, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 through 20, you'll see that God has an assertion. He says, all authority has been given to me. We have a command, go into all the world. And we have a promise, I am with you always. An assertion, a command, and a promise. Additionally, you'll see that one of the most repeated words in those few verses is the word all. All authority was given unto me. Go into all the world, teaching all the things that I have taught you, baptizing all the nations, and lo, I am with you always. All, 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 all. All power is his. This is God trying to, or doing his best so that we could understand what we're meant to do and how we're supposed to do it. Because look, we, we can, look friends, I'm going to be brutally honest with you. From a human standpoint, our mission here in this world, it's impossible. It's not even difficult. It's just impossible. We're just too few. We squabble and fight among ourselves. We don't like each other very often, unfortunately. We're not all that effortful. When we look at this whole mission conversation from our point of view, from our perspective, it's an impossible cause. We're up against a very a highly motivated enemy that takes no time off, no vacation, works overtime. How are we supposed to win? Well, here is your answer. When he says that all authority has been given unto me, this is God saying, I got this. The power is here. The power is mine and I'm giving it to you. And so go and just be my witnesses. We struggle with this because sometimes we want to take the front, the front show. We, we, want to, we want to take all of the light for ourselves. We want to take everything on ourselves. We have a very hard time understanding that we're not called to be God's lawyers, God's defensers. We're called to be his witnesses. That's it. Everything else, the final battle, the, the true warrior, it's the Holy Spirit of God. It's not you or me. We're called to be soldier, foot soldiers in this, in this thing. That's what you see in the book of Ephesians. Put on the whole armor of God. But when you look at the armor of God, it is the armor of God. None of it is yours. The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt buckle of truth, the shoes of peace, the shield of faith, the sword of God's word. All of these items are coming from him. And so here's the thing. If we don't, we just studied this in last quarter's lesson. If we don't put on God's armor, there's no way that we're going to be winning any battle, any fight here. There's no way that we're going to be successful in our mission. But thank God for that, actually. Thank God, because can you imagine what it would be like if it were you, if it were me? Thank God that it's him. This mission is his. Every day, friends, whether it's bright or gloomy, joyous or sad, or, or sad abundant harvests or scant, withered results, every day, sun or rain, wet or dry, every day until the very end of age, that's his promise. That is his guarantee. Lo, I am with you always until the very end. And I'll tell you something, I need that. I need that promise to be true. And I know that it is. Friends, I've been, you know, each of us have our, our stories. When it comes to ministry, this has been my 10th year of, a past, of being a pastor. But even before that, you know, so I'm, I'm not that old. You know, I'm still a, I'm still a, a youth, a children's pastor, which is great. I love it. But I have seen God confirm that promise to me over and over again in my life. Letting me know, 
allowing me to understand that he is with me always until the very end. That's his promise. And what's more, the death of Christ, it's the confirmation of that. The confirmation of the reconciliation. It's not, it's just a part of that reconciliation. There's more to it than that. It's not the end of it. By his death and his resurrection, and this is what we see here, Jesus received all this authority in heaven and on earth. And it's, it is based on his authority that he commissioned us all. So when you feel unmotivated, when you feel discouraged, when you feel sad and disheartened, because there's so many things happening in your life that are seeming to push you away from joy, from happiness, from an abundant life, I want you to remember right here, right now, in this moment, that Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection is the confirmation that your life doesn't have to revolve around those things. It doesn't have to revolve around that dismotivation. Those things will come. Isn't it strange that the Apostle Paul is the one that says that we have to, that we should always be rejoicing? Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And yet this is a man that was persecuted. This is a man that, that was shipwrecked. This was a man that was stoned and left for dead. It was a man that was beaten. It was a man that was imprisoned. How did this man find this secret? You know how? Because he didn't relegate his life to the blows coming from everything around him. He relegated his joy, his happiness, and his peace to something that no one, no beating, no persecution, no shipwreckedness, no prison could take away. That's the secret of this mission life, this missional life. It's understanding that while we will be hurt, our peace comes from him. And that no one can take away. What does his mandate guarantee us? Victory. Victory. You don't leave your house. I've already said this again and again here, and I'll, again, I'll continue to say it. You don't leave your home every morning to gain victory over anything. The victory is already yours. Victory is already yours, guaranteed in Jesus Christ. You just need to claim it. You need to want it. And it's victory over pessimism, defeatism, because he has all the power, the gates of hell will not prevail against the triumphant march of the gospel and of the church. And finally, we arrive on Thursday's lesson, which has the title, The God Who Will Come Back for Us. The God Who Will Come Back for Us. This is the biggest, greatest promise when you're reading the Bible, I want you to try to intentionally determine, intentionally see the moments where God, he promises his um, redemption. Try to, try to notice that when you're reading scripture. First of all, we have to remember that Jesus kept all of his promises. He kept all of his promises. He has a clean record. He has credibility in the market. <laughs> his promise is infallible. Because it's based on the word of the one who does not and cannot lie. Friends, he's going to return. He's going to come back because it would never make sense for someone to plant and then not reap the results. Why would he go through everything that he went through? You know that the, the resurrection is one of the most proven, factually proven, historically accurate facts of history. Why would he do that? Why would he go through that? just to not reap the results. It wouldn't make sense. I will come again. 
And look, there's nothing uncertain, there's nothing vague or more or less in those words of his promise. Have you ever had a promise broken to you? Someone promised you something and then broke that promise? That's happened to me before and it's not a good feeling. But here's, here's the other side of that. I know that I've already, I have already made promises that I have not kept. Have you ever done that too? You see, broken promises is part of human nature. Broken promises is a part of human nature. But here's the thing. God doesn't have that human nature. God keeps his promises. All of them. I will come again, is what he tells us. It's guaranteed by his victorious and true life. And such a promise has no expiration date. We're not looking at something that's not going to happen. You know, the Bible, if the Bible didn't say anything about it, I'd be worried. Right? If the Bible said nothing about the fact that it would seem that God is, is taking too long, that it's, it, it might not, you know, we, we, why is it taking so long? Then I'd be kind of worried. But the Bible over and over again in the pages of the New Testament, it makes it, it, makes it clear, it makes, yeah, it makes it ex- extremely clear that God counted on that. He knew that people would start wondering about it. Why is he taking so long? Why does it seem that time is going on and on and on and nothing's happening? Where is God? And that's a question that all of us can relate to on different levels. Where is God? Where is God when my family is hurting? Where is God when I am hurting? When I feel betrayed? Where is God when my friends are betraying me? Where is God right now that I lost my job? Where is God right now that my marriage is falling apart? Where is God right now that I've lost my best friends? Where is God right now that I have no resources? Where is God? On so many different levels, it might seem that God is delaying. But the, the Bible makes that provision that it might seem that way. Remember that God's time is not our time. His soon is not our soon. And what that reveals to me is that the essence here, the important part, it's not the when. It's not the date. It's the event. That's what's important. It's the event. His return expresses his desire to be with us forever. Look at what he says in John 14 verse 3. I will come back so that where I am, you may be also. Friends, either he's a liar Either he's a madman, a lunatic, or he is the Lord. He is God. Now, a liar wouldn't say the things that Jesus said. A liar wouldn't act the way that Jesus acted. My father always told me, you can fool many people for a little bit of time, or you can fool a few people for a long time, but you can never fool everyone always. You can never fool everyone forever. Jesus' lies would have caught up with him if he were a liar. If he were a madman, here we're talking, we're not talking about simple insanity or lunacy. We're talking about the ravings of a complete madman, if that were the case. Because for someone to claim to be God in the radical monotheistic uh, culture and religion in the days in which Jesus lived in Israel, that's not something simple. That is a completely insane person on the level of people who say that they're Napoleon or uh, Alexander the Great. So the only option left, friends, is that he is the Lord. He is who he says he is. And he does what he says he does. And if he said that he's going to come back soon, I believe it. He will come back soon. The Apostle John 
who recorded the words of Christ also bore witness to their final results, to their final fulfillments. In Revelation 21 verse 3, he says, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and will be their God. Friends, this small planet earth, dark and in revolt, where the Son of God was born, lived, suffered, and died. By those, or, uh, murdered by those who he came to serve, will come again. And this dark little world will be the center of the universe. In the words of Ellen White in The Desired of Ages, page 26, she says, The work of redemption will be complete. In the place where sin abounded, God's grace much more abounds. The earth itself, the very field that Satan claims as his, is to be not only ransomed, but exalted. Here, where the Son of God tabernacled in humanity, where the King of glory lived and suffered and died, here, when he shall make all things new, the tabernacle of God shall be with men. And through endless ages, as the redeemed walk in the light of the Lord, they will praise him for his unspeakable gift. Friends, this missionary God will have finally fulfilled his mission. The scriptures that open with a perfect paradise inhabited by a perfect couple, it also ends its pages with a perfect paradise and with a perfect people. With the multitude of the redeemed, those who wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb, the ills of the present will be overturned. Pains, tears, sorrow, heartache and heartbreak, separation, death, never again. The feelings of purposelessness, of emptiness, never again. We will be reunited for the feast of ages. The reunion with people we never forgot. People that life took away from us, but that our memories bring back up in our minds over and over again. Finally again, together, reunited. Our meeting with Jesus Christ, can you imagine what that's going to be like? There's a song, you know, um, the song is, I can only imagine. I can only imagine. Can you imagine what it will be like to look in his eyes? Will you jump for joy? Will you fall at his feet? Will you say anything? Will you just be quiet? I can't imagine our meeting with Jesus who will receive us with an, an indescribable welcome embrace. Echoed. Here we find that verse in Matthew chapter 25, verse 34, that says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So not only is Jesus the Lamb that was slain since the foundation of the world, but this kingdom was prepared for us from the foundation of the world. Do you understand? God is never caught by surprise. Not only was the plan of redemption put in place since the foundation of the world, but the end goal, the end result was right there since the foundation of the world. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from when? The foundation of the world. Now, I have a challenge for you. At the very end of our lesson, I have a challenge for you. This happy ending right here that we just talked about, the whole plan, this missional God, the God of the mission, that all the way from the very beginning, 
with Adam and Eve and then with their sons and then those first patriarchs, Noah and Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and all the way through the Old Testament, then the New Testament with the church, with the apostles. And all throughout history, this God that has guided this missional effort. And at the very end, we have this whole entire beautiful ending, this story, beautiful ending of the story that we've just talked about. It represents good news for our relatives, for our friends, for our family, our acquaintances. And here I want you to do something practical. I don't want to end our lesson on just, you know, on on some more abstract notions. I want you to do something. This whole quarter, I want you to work on this, right? This is my challenge to you. I want you to take a piece of paper and I want you to divide that, I want you to divide that piece of paper into four sections, four parts. In the first section, you're going to write down your relatives, your family members. So mother, father, sons, daughters, cousins, nephews. Write their names down. Those who are close to you, those who represent perhaps the world to you, write them down in that first quadrant, that first part of of the piece of paper. Next, I want you to write down the names of your friends, people who you have met, you know, and have become sometimes even more than family. There are friends that become even closer than family. I want you to write their names down. Third, I want you to write down your acquaintances, perhaps people that work with you, people that go to school with you, people that you wouldn't really, you know, they're not family, you wouldn't really consider them the closest friends, but your acquaintances, write them down on the third part of that piece of paper. And finally, on the fourth section, I want you to write down the occasional contacts. You know, the bus driver, a clerk at the bank, perhaps someone that you met at the grocery store, maybe someone just walking down the road that you remembered, you know, for whatever reason. These people that you just, you know, occasional contacts, you you just encounter them in your walk through life. And I want you to begin to pray for them. I want you to keep that piece of paper for this quarter and pray for these people. Asking God to create opportunities for you to testify, uh, uh, for your testimony, for you to witness to them. And I want you to pray fervently. Don't forget. Don't let this just be one thing that you do one day. No. Allow it to be something that you do for at least the next three months. Pray for these people. And pray for God to give you the eyes that see into situations, the eyes that see into the little instances of life, eyes of intentionality. I want you to ask God to give you the eyes that he has for people so that you can become more intentional in your witnessing to your family, to your friends, to your acquaintances, and to the people that you meet randomly or occasionally, sometimes. Friends, the promise is too glorious and too essential to be kept a secret. It can't be a secret. This is something that we have to tell the world about. Many are waiting just for you. There are so many people, friends, I know that there are people that will only be reached by your story. That, th- that wouldn't be reached otherwise by my story. You have that function. This, this reality that we're talking about right here, this promise is way too glorious for us to keep just a simple secret. Pray for yourself to remain alert and spiritual even amidst life's discouragements and life's setbacks, this apparent delay in the fulfillment of God's promise of coming back should give us an even greater sense of urgency because it is growing that much closer every day. It should fill us with hope 
the fact that the God of the Bible reveals himself to be a God of mission, a God that wants to be present, a God that wants to reach out over the gap and wants to use you as a witness. The best witness is that one that was part of the whole ordeal. Someone who has felt on their own flesh, on their own skin, on their own body, what it means to be saved by God. What it means to go through the process of justification, of sanctification. That is the best witness. That's a true witness, not a false witness. And so, my invitation to you is participate. Pray for them. Every day, intentionally, mention names. Mention circumstances and ask God to give you the eyes of intentionality so that you can see when the right moment is to say what you have to say. May God bless you. Please don't forget to take advantage of this free offer, Angel Messages from Space. You can call the number 866-788-3966 and ask for the offer number 137. If you're in continental North America, you can text SH165 to the number 40544 and you can get a digital download link. Or if you're outside of, of, of the U.S. or Canada, you could go to study.aftv.org slash SH165 and you could also get this digital download and it will go well along with your study of this week's lesson. Friends, study the lesson. It will be a blessing to you and to your family. And I'm sure that the Lord has many, many treasures of the Bible prepared for you. I'd like to invite you to pray with me right now. Dear Lord God, thank you for being the God, the missionary God, the God that reaches out, the God that wants to be close, the God that became one with us, and the God who has promised to come back for us. Lord, allow us to not only keep this to ourselves, but to extend this to all around us. And we ask your power to do that, Lord, because it cannot come from us. And so I thank you and I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May God bless you. And I'll see you at the next Sabbath School Study Hour. Don't forget to request today's life-changing free resource. Not only can you receive this free gift in the mail, you can download a digital copy straight to your computer or mobile device. To get your digital copy of today's free gift, simply text the keyword on your screen to 40544 or visit the web address shown on your screen. And be sure to select the digital download option on the request page. It's now easier than ever for you to study God's Word with amazing facts wherever and whenever you want. And most important, to share it with others.